But if you go back to those same farmers and you ask them, you know, the cocoa farmer, have you ever seen a chocolate bar? You know, oftentimes the answer is no. What that means is that even if you're paying a farmer a higher price, think about that $10 chocolate bar. How much money do you think actually went to that farmer? You know, even if it went into that economy, right? That economy that you're sourcing from, they have the cheapest part of the whole process. So all of the jobs and all of the innovation and all of the job creation and just everything that happens on all the following steps is totally taken out. I think there are very few people who think about the sort of equity within the supply chains, right? Welcome to Mindful Businesses, presented by Sarani, and I'm your host, Padia Ayer. In our podcast, we bring to you brands which are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful business adopts and employs sustainable social, economic, and environmental practices. Today, we have with us Renee Dunn, founder of Amazi Foods, Snack on Purpose. She joins us from Washington, D.C. Welcome, Renee. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. There is so much food waste alongside hunger worldwide. It behooves us to say that any plan to reduce world hunger requires the reduction of food waste to be an integral part of the solution. Most of us believe that our food comes from the grocery store, or we don't realize number of steps that are involved from when it's picked to when it comes to us in the store. In what part do you think is the greatest loss or waste of food and produce? I mean, I think the lack of transparency causes waste all along the supply chain. It causes over-ordering in the stores. It causes waste at the farm level. I don't know if I have a metric of that per se, but um, certainly the disconnects do contribute a lot to the food waste because, you know, there's not unified understanding of what people actually consume and, and what is actually in demand. Yeah, there is no balance as to exactly what is purchased and how much is actually sold, right? Or even along the supply chain, there is pilferage, there is rotting and waste. Yeah. And certainly those at the resource level have the least access to that data. So they're really at the mercy of whoever is purchasing from them. How is grocery or produce purchased in general? If I'm a farmer in America, how do I sell my tomatoes? That's a great question. I mean, you know, I think the general practice is that there are often large distributors so and or collectors even in between that. So, you know, there might be a farmer who has to sell to a distributor and or broker, ingredient broker might trade it with people who use it for ingredients. You know, the distributor will probably pass it along to stores ultimately. Um, it kind of goes through warehouses and is consolidated and put on the shelf. So how does this, our system here that we have in America compare to emerging economies? Because in India, they have a sort of a mandi system where the farmers have a cooperative and they take it to the local distribution center or they sell it at source to um, a person who can take all their produce to the distribution center because often they don't have the transportation or the means to take it. 
I imagine a lot of the similar patterns happen in the U.S. as well. In um, where I have experience in East Africa and Uganda specifically, it's similar to what you're describing. You know, farmers will grow what they have and they either rely on middlemen passing through who consolidate it and bring it into town to trade, or sometimes farmers themselves will head into local markets and trade it. Another method is there are export markets, and especially for commercial goods, those will be sourced, again, traded through middlemen and exported to other countries. So that's typically what you see happening on the ground there. Let's talk about how did you come across Uganda? You were not born and raised in Uganda. No, I was born and raised in Washington, D.C. I actually first went to Uganda when I was in middle school. My dad worked for the International Monetary Fund, and I first went with him actually on vacation because he had worked in Uganda and Tanzania and some of the other surrounding countries. So I had the opportunity to just go on vacation with him in middle school, but I, I did study abroad in Uganda when I was in college and then continued to do my thesis research there as well. What was your thesis research about? So I was studying local entrepreneurship in Uganda. I was particularly looking at sort of the balance between what they call the informal sector and the formal sector. The majority of businesses in Uganda are informal. The informal economy is very active and it's a very necessary part of the economy, but it also sort of only allows for growth of businesses to a certain level. You know, it's not really ever that people can build and grow and hire and innovate in those kinds of businesses. Usually they are typically, you know, what they call hustles. People will have five or six hustles that they're doing and they're all little businesses and they're making money and it's more for personal well-being or profit or what have you, what some people might call micro enterprise. But on a larger scale, there are not many avenues for what you would consider formal entrepreneurship. And I was kind of starting to realize that there was kind of disconnect where, you know, a lot of policies will in encourage micro enterprise, for example. And I think it's very important. But if you don't have a path for certain businesses to grow beyond that, then everybody ends up doing a micro enterprise and nobody ends up winning because everybody's doing the exact same thing. You know, the competition is so high. There's not an opportunity to stand out. You have to be price competitive. And so while it's very important for people's livelihoods, it's not necessarily going to help with job creation, with addressing unemployment, with again, like innovating. And specifically I was looking at agriculture and, and that's probably where you started asking me about supply chain and growing, but um, that's sort of where I saw sort of the most missed opportunity there. So what do you mean by informal sector? These are small businesses which are not actually registered, but they kind of just do a hustle? Typically, yeah. So it's like you would define it as something that is not a registered business. Um, they might not be paying taxes. They oftentimes it's just one or two people. Typically, you know, when you think of it, I'm thinking of Uganda specifically. So what those kinds of businesses might vary from economy to economy. But, you know, for example, people who trade fruit on the local market or who sell airtime or who drive uh, what they call boda bodas, the little motorcycle taxis. You know, some of these people do register and things like that and grow, but most of the time it's just a way to trade and, and you know, again, there's many reasons people do it. One, because it's culturally accepted and you typically build a network and you purchase from your friends and, and it works very well. But I guess what I was noticing is that if everybody's kind of doing the same kinds of businesses 
and unemployment continues to be very high and the businesses are typically short-lived and the potential margins are pretty small, there needs to be some other kind of next level available for people and particularly to do with an economy that is 70% dependent on their agriculture. There's so much opportunity to be doing more than just trading raw fruit, right? If you look at the food industry in the States, an incredibly innovative multi-billion dollar market, not to say that it has to get to that level, but there's so much more beyond just growing and selling raw products. And because of the way our current supply chain is set up, typically when we source from these emerging economies, they don't see any of the steps that happen beyond their farm, or they don't see any of the steps that happen beyond the raw banana. And so there's not really a general thinking as to that being a very lucrative business. And, and also the infrastructure is there. So, you know, there are many reasons why it's happening, but that's sort of what I was observing. So you said about 70% of the economy is still agrarian, right? So do they primarily grow fruits and vegetables or more beans and lentils and other things? Yeah. So, I mean, I think some of the commercial crops in Uganda are coffee. They have cocoa as well. Lots of maize, lots of banana, lots of plantain. But um, part of the reasons I was so struck by Uganda in particular is because it's one of the most fertile economies that I've ever, I've ever seen, probably because it's on the equator. But they have such a range of different kinds of fruits. And as exactly as you said, they have, they're very good at intercropping there as well, which is typically when you'll have nitrogen rich planted in between other fruits. So they'll have many different kinds of beans in the same field as they're growing, you know, bananas or jackfruit or whatever it might be. It's a very diverse climate, which is really cool. Jackfruit is my favorite fruit. We actually even use the raw jackfruit as a vegetable. Yeah. It's absolutely... It's a very versatile fruit. We love the jackfruit. But it's an acquired taste, I think. The fruit especially, there are a lot of people who think it's too sweet. One of our main product lines is the jackfruit juice. Really? Yes. We have found sort of a way to make jackfruit a little bit more approachable um, for people because I think it's such a unique taste that the first time people try it, the texture, I think, really confuses people sometimes too. So we actually dry and spice it and it ends up being, you know, a very sweet snack. It looks like a porcupine. Yeah, Definitely a very strange looking fruit for sure. Right? <laughs> yeah. So if you see it in the grocery store, like, what is that? And when you eat it, it's like, okay, now how do I process this whole taste? Yeah. I usually tell people it's like mango, pineapple, and banana combined. True. <laughs> but I love it. I really love it. Yeah. So most of this is organic still in Uganda? Your website seems to say that? Yeah. So, I mean, we unfortunately don't have the financial backing to... We're in the process of getting our organic certification, but all of our fruits are organically grown. And there's not a jackfruit in Uganda that is not organically grown. Right. You know, the, <laughs> they're, they're kind of like wild, you know, in people's backyards. And we spend a lot of time consolidating them from farmers groups. You know, the people laugh when they ask if the jackfruit is organic because there's no way it would be anything but. And there's a lot happening now 
to try to protect that asset because I know there have been government initiatives that kind of try to get, you know, GMO modified materials out to farmers or try to encourage them to plant other things, which they don't understand, you know, really takes away from the assets that they have True. and the value that they're growing. We train our farmers according to what they call NOP organic. It's an EU based organization for organic standards. So most of them are already growing organically. So there's not much that we actually have to change, but we do make sure that they go through the process of the training that would be required for certification. True. All of our network is organically growing. We can't claim the certification yet because we haven't done all the audits, but that's sort of our approach to farming. How the big corporations enter the markets in India and I can speak to the Indian context. Growing up, I had the most amazing corn that we would roast on charcoals and eat with lime and uh, chili powder and salt. And uh, now you find American corn, which is similar to the corn that I get in Indiana, you know, in the cornfields next to me in my home in India. And I'm like so appalled. It tastes completely different. I don't even want to think what it does to the soil, the flora, the fauna, because you are taking something in the prairie land in Indiana, you know, several, several degrees north of, say, Maharashtra, you know, and try to make farmers, you know, grow that. No, it's really interesting because, you know, I'm not so well-versed in this, but I do know of, in my contacts in Uganda and just different people that I know who are agronomists there and things like that. It's really interesting now in this global economy where two things, you know, one, people want to learn from each other's cultures in a way. So, you know, there's a healthier breed. For example, there was a um, bananas have this disease that they get a lot. And there was a breed of banana that wasn't native to Uganda but was more resistant to disease. And so people were trying to introduce that, you know, to Ugandan farmers. Obviously, it's exactly as you said. It's like you're losing sort of the local richness and the flavor um, by introducing outside things. I think it's sort of this balance of, you know, trying to share the knowledge that, you know, another economy might have, but finding a way to still preserve what people are actually growing in the local ecosystem. And I think also on the flip of that is, I mean, I think we've seen this happen, especially in America, but people and American consumers in particular, and I think this is starting to shift now. But they're so um, trained to expect something uniform. Right. You know, people are so used to processed food and they're so, not really open to going outside of what they expect a flavor to be. You know, I'm sure you've experienced this too, but like when I eat a banana here versus when I eat a banana in Uganda. Oh my God. The flavor is totally different. Yeah. And it's so much better in Uganda. Another banana story in India, the ripe bananas up to about 10 years ago were green in color. Now I get only the Chiquita banana variety in India. It's impossible, even interior India, to get the bananas that I grew on. They are green color, but they're you know completely ripe, but they don't ever turn yellow. I have no clue what happened there. That's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, so we, part of what inspired, you know, the different fruits that we use was that between the time that I was studying there and living there, I would try these plantain chips that they made on the side of the road. And you could find them sometimes at some local gas stations, things like that. 
They were not very high quality, but they used a sweet plantain and they were so good. There was nothing that tasted like it here. And I would bring it home. Like I would fill up my suitcase with these little bags and I'd bring it to the States <laughs> and share with my friends. And everybody was like, you know, it had this caramelized taste. It was so good. And so I figured, you know, that actually is what initially got me thinking about my whole business is that these are flavors that people in the States have never had before. And even though they think, oh, I've had a plantain or, oh, I've had this, they really haven't because it's unlike what we eat here. That's sort of what inspired me to try to find a way to kind of make a healthier version that would be produced locally in Uganda and, and introduce that to people in the States. And that's sort of how my idea first started. But yeah, it was really inspired by sort of this idea that there's no sense of like what the globe has to offer in terms of variety, as opposed to, you know, what we're used to picking up from the grocery store every day. So your business is called Amazi. Yes. What does it mean? Amazi is a word in both Luganda and Swahili, um, and it means water. And we chose that word for two reasons. One is because it's one of the only words that Americans uh, could say. <laughs> there were enough vowels in between. Exactly. We tested a bunch of other words before we chose that name, and uh, the reactions were not <laughs> were not so positive. So that's part of it. Um, and then the other one, too, is the more symbolic meaning that you know, the goal of Amazi Foods is to really grow more sustainable agricultural supply chains. And in agriculture, water is the heart of growth. So we like to think that we're sort of the heart of that process. That's a little insight to the meaning. When did you start the business? It's actually almost been five years, which is pretty crazy. In 2016, spring of 2016, I uh, decided to stop what I was currently doing and go back to Uganda after a couple years of me not being there. And I decided to kind of take a leap and see if I could find, you know, local partners to help us kind of make this change in the world. So that's sort of what we did. What drew you back? Yeah, well, I think I built a connection while I was there. I spent actually most of my time in Kampala, although the countryside is the most striking part. And I think what kept me coming back was it's an incredible balance of chaos and just calmness in a very strange way. I remember I used to joke that with my Ugandan friends that if I made it across the street in Kampala safely, you know, that was a win <laughs> because you kind of just go. There's no organization. It's just every man for himself. But at the same time, people are willing to move slowly and they're connecting and it's not sort of this blind hustle and rush that we have kind of here. I'm on the East Coast and in America. So it was so interesting to be a part of a culture, you know, especially as an outsider that seemed so crazy when you're like looking in and moving around, but people themselves are just very, you know, even and calm and friendly. And it was just something that I was so not used to. Describe the Ugandan countryside to us. What did you miss about it? And the countryside, of course, is what really just... It's so lush. I've been planning in my head, you know, obviously COVID has put this on hold, but I really want to take people on an Amazi retreat so they can see the farmland and see where things are grown because it's so green and amazing. Yeah. Count me in <laughs> on the Amazi retreat. I'll let you know. Yeah, <laughs> I want to come. Some of our first farmers groups that we partnered with are in this very Western region near the border with uh, DRC. There they have a lot of crater lakes. 
and you have these gorgeous crater lakes and these big green kind of mountains and the plantains are all growing on the side. It's just, it's amazing. Dream of the day that I get to bring other people there too. Now you source all the fruits and vegetables from the farmers in Uganda. What do you do with them? The whole mission behind Amazi is to show people and create market access, kind of show people what is possible beyond the raw fruit. And the idea behind that is that we need to stop kind of stopping and ethically sourcing. So I guess what I mean by that is, you know, we hear all these stories about fair trade, about ethical sourcing, about farmers getting higher wages. And I think it's very important that that consciousness is growing. But if you go back to those same farmers and you ask them, you know, the cocoa farmer, have you ever seen a chocolate bar? You know, oftentimes the answer is no. What that means is that even if you're paying a farmer a higher price, think about that $10 chocolate bar. How much money do you think actually went to that farmer? You know, even if it and into that economy, right? That economy that you're sourcing from, they have the cheapest part of the whole process. So all of the jobs and all of the innovation and all of the job creation and just everything that happens on all the following steps is totally taken out of that local economy. And so how can we expect to kind of close that gap if that's the nature of the supply chain always? And so my idea with Amazi was to not only source locally, but also produce locally so that people could see, you know, what is it quality standards of the American palate? How do you ship to America? What are different spice flavors? What's possible? with what's growing here. And, and we're also very transparent on our pricing. Like we show them in order, if we purchase it at this price, then it has to be made into this. Then it has to be made into that. Then the distributor takes this much. Then, you know, no one's ever let anybody know <laughs> that that's how it works. And so it's really just trying to bring a lot more value and wealth redistribution um, in how our food is made. And so so what we do now is, like I said, we source from farmers directly. Um, we have direct relationships with all of our farmers. And then we partner with a local Ugandan business, and they make all of our products there in central Uganda. And they hire, currently, I think we have over 30 employees working at the facility. Everybody's paid you know, two to three times the local wage, and, and they make it from start to finish. They even pack it and send it to us here in the States so that all we do is, you know, help make that connection. We're basically just a marketing arm for them. And so they get to own the entire process. You don't even own the manufacturing there. You just have facilitated. Right. So I have a portion, but that was only made to help with any risk mitigation. So I don't, you know, technically the business has a connection, but it's majority Ugandan owned and it's fully Ugandan operated. So we mostly are just an arm to help with, again, that risk mitigation. I think for, for them, obviously, it's a big risk to ship internationally, you know, all that stuff. So the fact that we're connected and we can't just walk away at any point, I think is, that's part of the intention. So for both sides, it helps to have that connection. But they are a totally, you know, a majority of you got an owned and operated uh, facility over there. So was it easy to find this manufacturer? You had some connections, obviously, because of your dad having lived there and you having gone back there, you having doing research. But you were in a different level. You probably 
weren't an entrepreneur in Uganda prior to this? So short answer, no, it was not easy. Very not easy. (laughs) That's why it's been five years. (laughs) The first three years, you know, in the beginning, three and a half years, even we were working more with other local fruit producers and we found people who were making dried fruit and we kind of treated them like what you would call co-manufacturers in the United States. So not many people know this, but you know, most of your favorite brands that you purchase on the shelf are not actually made by that brand. They're made by a factory that makes product for a lot of different brands. And it's called contract manufacturing because it's very expensive for businesses to have their own operations. And so let's say you have a favorite granola bar and they use this certain equipment to make granola bars. They can make granola bars for, you know, 20 different brands using each person's recipe, but they have the same equipment. So that's how a lot of production works actually in the States. But obviously in Uganda, that doesn't really exist. And so we, in the beginning, sort of found a local company that was making dried fruit and they were exporting to the EU. And they also had one customer in America. And so I started working through them because A, I I had never done this before. You know, I had never run any sort of manufacturing and, and certainly couldn't invest right off the bat in a production facility when we didn't know there was demand, we didn't know, you know, so basically we developed a co-packing arrangement where I trained them on how to make these new recipes that I developed. And we included more farmers into the um, chain and kind of just worked with them to do our initial production. But then of course, as we started growing, we knew that we needed to have a much more transparent supply chain and also one that can handle higher volumes. And that's when we found these partners that were willing and excited to kind of open a new facility for us. (laughs) That's how we eventually got to where we are. So how did you test the new flavors? Yeah. You said you took the flavors and kind of adapted to the American palate. How did you test it? It took a lot of iteration. You know, our initial product was not nearly as good as it is now. So I had to kind of learn myself. But I think, you know, I also have a background beyond, you know, my thesis and development work. I also have a lot of experience in the fitness and the wellness industry. And I was very familiar with sort of the natural product space and was kind of seeing what kinds of flavors people were putting out there. And I was sort of inspired myself by oh, I tried this jackfruit. I think this would taste really great with some chili and lime. These plantain chips are so sweet. I wonder if we paired them with some salt and some olive oil and kind of paying attention to what U.S. trends were and what I as a consumer would want to see. But then taking, you know, the rich Ugandan fruits and kind of pairing them with these spices to find sort of a way to make them enticing to people in America. So now we have these awesome products in America. So do you get any backlash about it being processed? Because we are moving away from processed foods in general. Or do you think the way you process is a more acceptable form of processed food? So I think there's a difference between like our every single ingredient list is We have three ingredients in every package and it's all just fruit and spices. And you could argue actually that not processing to any degree is actually an unsustainable practice because again, that taps into food waste. We didn't really talk about this before, but one thing that I feel that we're addressing too is a lot of times larger corporations or governments in emerging countries, they recognize the fact they're food waste. And so they say, okay, let's make a big processing facility and just 
you know, take all the maize and process all the maize and have these big maize mills and, you know, it's all stored and that we've come up, you know, food security. Here we go. I think the problem with that is, I mean, a few things. One is that it's sort of just feeding into existing processing practices that are not environmentally friendly, are not necessarily nutritionally dense, and they also don't highlight quality. But I think they're also not necessarily connected to a market. You know, even though it might be helping with local food security to a degree, it doesn't actually create many profits for the farmers who are growing those things. And it also, it might sit there, right? Because no one is actually purchasing it per se, or it's being used for something else that's highly processed. So in my mind, it was like, well, there is a way to encourage what they call agro-processing, but not to do so in this way of traditional food processing that we think about. You know, it's, it's still a very natural product. And we're very conscious of what we put in every bag. You know, there's no added sugar, there's no oils, nothing like that. So basically, you're adding value to this basic product, and the value is going back to the Ugandan farmer and the Ugandan company who uh, is supporting you. Yes, 100%. How often do you go back? Pre-COVID, of course. I was going to say, COVID certainly been a, a wrench in my plans. <laughs> but no, I used to go two to three times a year, and I'm hopeful that I'll be back again in July. So fingers crossed. Yeah, this is the longest time since I've been to Uganda and since before I started the business. So it's been tough. <laughs> it's been tough to be here. Yes, but we all see the light at the end of the tunnel now. I know, I hope. So what are the products that you have? Are you? We talked about jackfruit. We talked about bananas. Currently, we have two product lines. We have our plantain chips and our jackfruit chews. Jackfruit chews are, like I was mentioning, you know, just fruit and spices, nothing else. But they end up tasting sort of like a grown-up candy. Um, they're very sticky and chewy and sweet. Very popular line that we have. And they're also very high in fiber. And then we also have our plantain chips, which are very different than the typical plantain chip because they're dried and roasted instead of fried. So they have these caramelized textures. There's no greasy residue. Um, and we offer each of the lines in three different flavors. So where can one get your products? Sure. So happy, always happy to tell people where they can find it. So <laughs> we are in over 600 stores nationally. Um, some of the bigger chains are Sprouts Market as well as the Fresh Market. And we'll be launching quite a few more later this year. So I encourage anybody listening to stay tuned. Um, but we also are on our website at amazifoods.com as well as on some grocery subscriptions like Misfits Market and also on Amazon.com. So you try to be mindful on so many levels, right? You try to make sure your farmers are paid well. You try to keep the manufacturing at source because that was the first question. I was like, so where does the manufacturing happen? Because if you're going to bring the fruits here and make it in Pennsylvania, it really doesn't help the economy there. So you try to be mindful at many levels. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's very much what you're saying. And then I'll also add to that, but I think there are very few people who think about the sort of 
equity within the supply chains, right? And I think that that for me is one of the most important parts. It's kind of exactly what you're saying is that's great to source directly. It's great to mobilize farmers. It's great to empower farmers. But if we're continuing to cause this disconnect between, you know, the emerging economies and the economies that are innovating, we can't possibly expect to like have a more mindful, you know, international connection, I guess, so to speak. That's certainly a big component. But I think I was actually just having a conversation with people yesterday that there are many opportunities to do conscious business. And I don't think it has to be this big thing. Yes, we've done a pretty big thing by building a manufacturing facility in Uganda. But I think that we look for opportunities to do good every step of the way. And, and for example, we partner with a an NGO that hires intellectually disabled people to fulfill our orders instead of working with a big fulfillment center, for example. So there are many opportunities like that to be in alignment and kind of bring more positive change uh, to things because I think when the marketplace is so crowded, why create just another product that's contributing to a lack of mindfulness? I think it, it doesn't make sense <laughs> to bring things to market if they're going to continue, you know, to not create positive change. So that's sort of how I think about it. Probably still be grinding pretty hard on this. <laughs> Three years is not so, so long, but no, I mean, I really do hope that this business does grow far beyond the product lines, far beyond the U.S. market. You know, we actually just started discussing with our production partners of how they can start kind of selling to their local market and selling to the EU and kind of empowering them to go beyond just whatever sales that I'm making, you know, creating opportunities for themselves. That's kind of been my vision is to have sort of a model that encourages what they call intrapreneurship, you know, where the people who are working there have, you know, the freedom to say, oh, a lot of our farmers also grow this fruit. I wonder if we could develop a product with that and kind of take it further. But I think for us, you know, I really hope that how were you able to create that trust with your uh, producers? I mean, I think it, with any trust relationship, it takes time and it takes transparency <laughs> and it takes, you know, again, it's part of why we have a share in the business. So there is some legal requirement of trust. But yeah, I mean, I think it's more a partnership than a very uh, trend. Yeah, there's, there's a whole other talk. I mean, talking about mitigating risk and trust in international business is a whole other topic that, you know, we can talk about another day. And I've certainly learned some lessons the hard way. You know, I think that the model that we built is one that encourages transparency, at least with our partners. And that's not to say that I think you can just go off and expect this to exist with, you know, any facility that you find anywhere, but we've been lucky to to build both through personal connection and through time partners that I think are on the same page. I guess that's a short answer for a big question. <laughs> so were there a lot of cultural barriers that you had to overcome? Because living as an expat is completely different than working there too, right? You know, this is part of why we also trust local partners to a degree because I will never fully understand Ugandan culture like they do. But I think in terms of the business, like I've personally had many cultural awakenings while I've been there, you know, and I have many funny stories about that. One of the greatest cultural, you could say, differences with regards to the business is that in kind of what we were joking about before, that Americans are very used to things being the same every time. Like, you know, especially when it comes to consumables, 
they expect if I open this bag of chips, it's going to taste the same every time. It's going to have the same texture. I go get this brand because I like this brand and I know this brand makes this thing. And that's not really how people think about it in Uganda. You know, consistency and quality is not necessarily something that's paid attention to in the same way. And so we spent many, many iterations kind of going over and over and over again how, you know, it can't be sweet one time and not sweet the next time. It can't be sometimes spicy and other times not spicy. Like there were many trials and errors and and frustrating moments of that was one of our biggest challenges. It took us many years to kind of get consistency very clear uh, because it's just not something that, that anybody there would even when they taste it, they don't even notice it because they're not paying attention to it in the same way that Americans might. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. We wish you all the best. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. If you're a creator of a mindful brand or would like to recommend a mindful brand to be featured on our show, send an email to info at mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. Subscribe and listen to us on your favorite podcast listening app. Remember to rate and review us. To learn more about this and our other episodes, check out our website, mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. If you learned a thing or two on this episode, share it with one friend. This is Vidya Iyer with Mindful Businesses.